0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
3: I'm Caroline Hyde in New York for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Musk walks and Twitter it tanks. We'll bring the latest on the legal battle ahead. And what the future of the $44 billion Twitter deal actually looks like. Plus, a slash in valuation for one of the Europe's most high-profile startups, Klarna, being valued now at just $6.7 billion, down from $45.6 billion. Just one year ago, we talked to an investor in the company. And a primetime shopping event. Amazon kicking off its two-day shopping extravaganza on Tuesday. How Prime Day Could help Amazon's third-quarter online sales gain. Meanwhile. Let's get back to the scene being set for a disruptive legal battle over the future of Twitter. Shares of the social media platform are falling after Elon Musk walked away from his $44 billion deal to buy the company. Musk alleges, look, that Twitter misrepresented user data. Twitter plans to sue Musk to close the transaction. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner joins us. And just ahead of our conversation, Kurt, of course, we understand from a lawyer for Twitter, and it is always the lawyers that win in this, it wouldn't be said. Twitter's lawyer is saying that Musk's termination is invalid and wrongful, and he says that Twitter has breached no obligations. Where are you at with this?
4: Yeah, we're, we're getting to the fun part of the, uh, uh, you know, deal where all the lawyers are just going to start sending each other letters back and <laughs> forth, and we're going to have to parse through all this legalese. But you're right, now it's Twitter's turn, right? On Friday, we were talking, Caroline, you and I were, were live on air when we were reading, uh, you know, this letter from Elon Musk's lawyers basically saying, hey, Twitter, you violated this agreement now. Twitter has filed its response and and is basically saying the opposite. You know, we have upheld our uh, version of the agreement or our part of the agreement, and it's you who has been misleading or who has, uh, you know, violated, right? And so we're clearly headed to a court here, and both sides are going to get to uh, argue their case. But at least for right now, the lawyers are starting to, you know, put their their respective arguments out into uh, the universe.
3: And what is some of the theories being held here as to how it could, turn out? Who could win out? It's not just going to be a $1 billion termination fee, it feels.
4: No, I I would be shocked if that's the ultimate result. I would imagine that we're going to end up somewhere in the middle, right? I think there's two kind of dramatic outcomes that could come from this legal battle. The one is actually what you just said, that you know, a court uh, uh, rules in favor of Elon Musk and that he pays termination fee and walks away. The other is that they rule in favor of Twitter and they force Elon Musk to spend $44 billion to buy a company he doesn't want to buy. Now, alternatively, I think these two sides could settle somewhere in the middle. That to me seems like the most likely scenario. Right. But in that in that case, there's infinite number of outcomes here. So we don't uh, know exactly where they're going to end up.
3: Nothing like infinite amount of outcomes to pass. Kurt Wagner, again, thank you so much for all your expertise on that Friday and for expertise again today as we continue to follow this pretty torrid story. Let's get more analysis for you. Let's bring in Mark Mahaney of Evercore, who covers the company and, whilst well, as we're saying an infinite amount of outcomes here, Mark, but from a fundamental basis, without the $44 billion offer, what is Twitter worth?
2: It's probably not too far off from where we trade. If the deal was decided tomorrow, it was off probably come off a couple of percent. But there's some markers in the market you can look at the multiples that Pinterest uh, and Snapchat trade at, and uh, you know maybe there's a little bit of downside to that kind of high twenties, thirty dollar range, something like that. But it's not it's not much more dramatic uh, than that. And the difference here is, by the way, you know we. Kind of forgotten this and all this the noise is that Twitter's a good asset uh it generated five billion in advertising dollars last year advertisers were obviously cognizant of and willing to tolerate the bot issue uh, and uh, the company generated positive free cash flow margins for several years you know prior to the covet crisis so it's a business that's at you know reasonable scale decent growth um, it's underperformed major peers like Google and uh, and Facebook, but those were always unfair comparisons. It's a decent asset. Uh, ne- uh, re- uh, recently, it's probably been somewhat impaired by all the uncertainty over mm-hmm. this deal. And then going forwards, it's probably somewhat impaired by the recession that's taking out uh, growth from almost all internet ad assets.
3: Does it become impaired by advertisers walking away because of bots, as it seems? that um, currently Elon Musk is trying to argue?
2: I don't know, Caroline, it's possible. I've run surveys on Twitter for 10 years, advertiser surveys on Twitter for uh, almost 10 years. It's never come up as an issue. I've never actually had a channel check or a discussion with an advertiser that said, I can buy ads on Facebook, but I can't do it on Twitter because of the bots issue. I've never heard that. Uh, that there are bots, that there are uh, click farms in social media. I think that's well understood. It's part of the, the, the you know, it's part of the peril of these uh, these industries and uh, these companies. And Twitter and Pinterest and and Google and Facebook have always had to fight back against these uh, bot farms. It, it's just part of the uh, part of doing business. People run bots for political reasons, they run them for commercial reasons, but it's always been a factor. I don't think it's been an issue for advertisers uh, over the last couple of years. I think that $5 billion in ad revenue that Twitter got last year, they got the, they, they, earned it. And I think uh, and advertisers weren't put off by the fact that mm. there were bots on the platform.
3: Has there been any upside to this whole fiasco for Twitter?
2: I'm struggling, Caroline. I think there's been no upside. Mm. So all you've done is um, created a lot of dysfunction within the company. They've lost some of their top employees. Uh, there's probably been some demoralization of employees because um, you know Musk has come out and said that there were too many people working there. How would you feel if somebody who's going to buy your uh, company started off by saying there are too many employees at the company? So I just think that's unfair. what's happened is very unfortunate. Mm. And um, I thought um, Musk had a lot of interesting ideas of ways to improve. Mm. Twitter. And maybe this will all come out and maybe maybe we will get some sort of resolution at a reduced deal size. But I I, my guess is that the worst case scenario is going to come through, which is that this is going to go through the courts for some time. There'll be some sort of breakup fee and then Twitter is going to have to rebuild a little bit. And uh, that's probably going to be a year from now. Uh, And it's uh, very unfortunate. I think what's transpired here over the last couple of months for investors as a whole.
3: Well said. We thank you, Mark Mahaney, really trying to find the fundamentals in what is, in general, a non-fundamental story at the moment. of a dramatic reversal for one of Europe's most high-profile startups, Klarna Bank. Valuation being slashed to just six point seven billion dollars in its latest funding round. We understand that's down from, at one point, more than forty-five billion in June two thousand and twenty-one. The Swedish buy-now-pay-later giant has been. Burning through hundreds of millions of dollars, of course, as a startup, and joining us to discuss where next and how we continue to see talent sort of recompense in this market. Andrew Walm of Manhattan Venture Partners. Andrew, it's really great to have you on, and of course Klarna, one of your uh, numerous members of your portfolio. And I'm interested as to what happens in these environments, how mu- how painful it is for the executives leading the
5: business and the people who've invested. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me, Caroline. So I will say that at Manhattan Business Partners, where we invest in growth and late-stage companies, much like Klarna, while they're really hitting the peak trajectory of their business, is that we still believe that extraordinary companies backed by the the best investors will deliver these types of outsized returns. And so even though Klarna has seen their valuation compressed, we believe in their long-term prospects very much so. And I think that they're deploying a number of strategies to keep the existing employee base and executive base retained. Yeah, because talk
3: to us. I mean, you're you're someone who thinks a lot about, well, liquidity in the secondary market. And a lot of that, often these big valuations and moments of exit, which are currently the doors have shut to a certain extent, are because it's about talent management. It's about ensuring that they're able to take some money out, have a liquidity event. How hard does that become at the moment?
5: Well, for the best companies in this world, there's always going to be demand, right? So I think that that's something that we always measure when we evaluate companies, whether it's on a primary basis or on a secondary basis. And when it comes to Klarna, there's always been a really healthy volume of activity in the business. And investors are really excited about the prospects of where they're growing, because as of right now, they are the market leader across all geographies in the buy now, pay later space and growing much further than just that nature of its business and so i would say the prospects of the secondary market continue to get rather exciting and have created some really unique opportunities to buy into the business or dollar cost average across both businesses like varna and others what are you wanting to see from the leadership at Klarna, but the leadership of all your
3: companies that you've currently been backing and some that, of course, have seen exits themselves, but some that continue to grow in this environment. How, do you want them to be focused more in on profit in this environment?
5: Absolutely. So I do say across the board that we're really focusing on seeing our companies invest in that profitability and increase their margins so that they can get above the line, right? And at least be in the single digit profitability margins where Klarna has sit for the last 14 years of its business, if not longer, right? So Klarna is an exceptional example of a company who knows how to increase its profitability and control it. Overall, though, for other businesses across our portfolio and others in the venture landscape, it's that we might want to turn down the the dial a bit on sales and marketing spend and really increase that profit margin, which is really a level of just baking in those levers, right? Saying, hey, maybe we don't need to spend so much on Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads this quarter, or maybe, hey, we don't need to put as much money into creating a new layer of product roadmap. And instead just focus on the products that deliver, right? Mm. And focus on the customer's who are there versus creating new innovative products just as a way to be uh, unique in their product market fit direction.
3: How about products that had seemed a real winner in terms of well, acquisition of new customers? Certainly I think of Revolut, another European pinup in terms of well, success story in the fintech world and they really had doubled down on offering crypto, for example, to bring in new users. But with the fallout and valuation there as well, are you likely to see products moved away from or do you think they'll remain committed to them?
5: I think that what they'll stop doing is just de- delivering on new products, right? I think as we look at companies like Klarna and like Revolut is that they want to shift away from the core focus that they've been you know, honed in on for Klarna, it's buy now, pay later, for example, and instead focus on creating volume from their existing user base, which is something we are really excited about, right? I think generally companies like Klarna realize where their public comps sit and they want to ensure that they're creating their own market position away from those public comps and seeing that their growth can continue while just honing in on the products that have always been proven to be successful for these companies, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really love how Sebastian, uh, the CEO of Klarna today, said on Twitter that what doesn't kill you make you stronger because it's it's a business that I think generally understands exactly where their mindset could be to keep honing in on the products that win. And with this new capital infusion for Klarna, it's really going to allow them to keep that expansion growing across the United States, which is something where their public comp firm has predominantly had a dominant force. But Klarna, uh, uh, as we know, is just growing so much more faster at a three hundred percent, you know, annual growth rate relative to them as a comp. So we have a lot of uh, hope there.
3: Oh, from your perspective, how long does this? sort of quietening down in the private markets and valuations last four. And I'm not saying every business is affected by it. I think you're in Flexport, of course, which is a company that's, well, really ramping up because there's a supply chain disaster out there and they're a company that can help. But there are areas like Instacart, which this is an inflationary environment.
5: How long does that persist, do you think, Andrea? Yeah, so I would say right now we really need to see what the results of the first half of the year look like across all businesses, right? I think we're just closing the books on Q2 um, and going into Q3. And generally, where the reflection of the market is going to sit is what companies will be ready to go out, go public, Mm -hmm. going into Q3, and ideally the months of September, October, and anything before the Thanksgiving holiday for the U.S. companies. That's where I would see There might be a shift in sentiment. But what's Mm. happening is companies like Instacart, uh, for example, are filing their registration statement. They're using really broad based language just to describe what kind of statement um, and company they're going to be as a public company and determine whether that's right to go out. So these companies are choosing when to go out based on where the market will be, but at least they're ready to do so if it opens up.
3: Andrea Wong, thank you so much for your time. Manhattan Ventures Partners, stay well Uh, there in Nashville. Meanwhile, coming up an exclusive interview with the US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Stay for it. This is Bloomberg.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop.
3: U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo believes legislation that would appropriate fifty two billion dollars for domestic semiconductor manufacturing will pass Congress. She spoke exclusively on Bloomberg. Take a listen.
7: Yes it will happen. It's taking much too long and uh, what's at stake is our national security even beyond the economy. You know every piece of military equipment requires chips. If you talk to the heads of national defense contractors as, as I have done uh, or senior ranking officials in the Department of Defense, they're all uh, very worried about the delay. Uh, but yes, it will get done. This is, at this point in the negotiation, unfortunately, uh, politicians look for leverage. And uh, while it isn't right to play politics with national security, that's what I think is happening. In the past two weeks, we, we made huge progress Uh, We were closing out issues, finding compromise, so I think everyone just needs to come back today, uh, get back to work, and commit themselves to getting it done in the next few weeks.
8: Let me ask you what difference it makes whether it gets done today or six months today. What decisions are being made, perhaps by companies, such as, for example, the groundbreaking out in Columbus? What decisions are being made that may not be reversible down the road?
7: Well, what you say is exactly right. Uh, Chip companies are making decisions now, literally right now, because they need to meet demand of their biggest customers in 2025, 2026, which means they have to start getting cement in the ground on new facilities this summer and this fall. You know, earlier today, you saw Global Foundries has made a choice to expand in France, not the United States. You know, that's a loss. Uh, you just mentioned Intel, who is saying perhaps they'll slow down their Ohio expansion in favor of Germany, and the reason is because these big companies are hearing from their customers that they need confidence that the you know the companies will be able to hit the you know supply to them. 2025, 2026, 2027 chip demand is projected to be through the roof. And so these suppliers, whether it's Intel, Micron, Texas Instruments, they need to fulfill for their customers. They want to be in the U.S. But if the choices are not you know, not fulfilling their customer demand or doing this in France, Germany, Singapore, Japan, who are already providing subsidies today they're going to leave america and do that and so that is the risk and that's why today members of congress get back into dc get back do your job don't let america lose out
2: should we be expecting an announcement from the president before he departs for the middle east this week on tariffs on easing the tariffs that are currently applied to a number of chinese goods because that ahead of the cpi number wednesday will be something i think a lot of people would look for
7: Uh, I'm not sure I don't I don't know guy the precise timing I can tell you that we his team are in active you know discussions with him uh, something we're talking about every day and he is you know he's doing his job which is to say looking at all the different factors you will see a decision I think very soon whether it's whether it's before he takes off this week I'm not sure.
8: Uh, just to f- pursue the China issue for a moment, Madam Secretary, the tariffs are one thing. That's one part of a much more complex mosaic here. We talk about tariffs in terms of inflation. You've already said that it's not going to have that big an effect on that. But what about the larger term relationship with China? And let me be specific about this. In terms of specific tariffs being taken off or not, is it possible it could be bilateral? Is it possible China could actually give something to the United States to try to reformulate our trade relations?
7: Uh, Certainly that is possible. And you raise an excellent point, which is, you know, part of the discussion that one of the things the president is thinking about, which is to say, if we're going to do this, you know, what can they do on their side of the equation? So while I can't say for sure, uh, certainly that is possible. And by the way, if it doesn't happen immediately, it's something that we will continue to pursue just in the interest of, you know, as you say, fairness. If we're lifting tariffs, what are they going to do?
3: U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo there with our own David Weston and Guy Johnson. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline and for Emily Chang. Let's get to a Bloomberg scoop. EV maker Rivian was cutting its workforce by 5% after a hot growth streak, according to sources. Now, Rivian shares, they closed down 6.5% on Monday. And this, of course, was following the report from our one Ed Ludlow. You helped break the story. Tell us a bit about where the job cuts are going to be coming from, Ed.
0: Yeah, so it's important to note that sources say these are non-manufacturing roles, right? These are not the men and women on the assembly lines actually building the EVs. They're kind of back office roles, supportive roles. And Rivian's one of these startups that raised a lot of money before going public, raised a lot of money when it went public, and they were just able to grow so quickly. They've kind of doubled headcount to 14,000 employees in the last year alone. And in some of those areas, kind of support ancillary areas, they just grew too fast to to too big a size they have duplicates in a lot of roles so with the macro picture such as it is they're kind of trimming the fat and bracing for a sort of less solid global economy
3: overall do you think that this is a case of having overhired is this a case of just reorientation is this a case of just trying to meet the economy where it is
0: Rivian's interesting because it's supply constrained. In other words, the demand for their EVs is so great that they can't possibly keep up with it. They can't build the EVs fast enough. They do have a lot of cash, $17 billion on the balance sheet, but I get the sense from insiders, also investors, that that $17 billion, a lot of it's already accounted for. Right? They're going to build this second factory in Georgia to the tune of $5 billion. There's also all the R&D costs for the next generation of cars. and. Even though the CFO Claire McDonough is really inexperienced, she's a former Wall Street banker, she's very disciplined and I get the sense that they're looking to preserve cash as best they ca- can and kind of make it go a long way. So it's kind of all of the aforementioned things that you put.
3: Very briefly, of course, you were looking just last week at how Rivian was, well, getting snapped up at some valley, at least in the photos. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so rj Scarring, the ceo was kind of the hot ticket every everywhere i looked rj Scarring was there and somebody wanted to talk to him they brought some evs with them an r1s suv and an r1t pickup to sun valley and you had all these attendees kind of crowding around the car look at it but i'm told that on the thursday night tim cook the CEO of Apple actually borrowed one of the pickup trucks with uh, a gang of people and went into town for dinner, which is interesting because as we've reported at Bloomberg, Apple's looking at its own EV potentially. And, you know, in the world of tech, it's interesting to see who's looking at who and who's spending time with who. Indeed.
3: What a small world it is over there at Ludlow looking at everyone and what they're up to. We thank you so much, our EV expert there. And meanwhile, well, let's get back to it. The key story of the day is Twitter and shares tumbled Monday after Elon Musk walked away, of course, on Friday from his $44 billion deal to buy the company, setting the scene for what is going to be a pretty disruptive legal battle. Our next guest says, well, Twitter is well-positioned legally. Police, perhaps Musk is looking for any excuse to get out of this deal. Joining us is Ann Lipton, Tulane University Associate Professor in Business Law and Associate Dean for Faculty Research. Wonderful and to have you with us and your expertise. And do, are there many legal grounds for Elon Musk to stand on here?
9: Um, it doesn't appear like it. I mean, obviously, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what facts he might develop um, as court proceedings continue. But at least based on what's been stated publicly, he's offered a number of grounds to argue that Twitter has breached its obligations and therefore he's entitled to walk away. And so far, they really just don't seem that substantial. So he claims that Twitter misled him about the spam on the platform. That's what's getting all the headlines. But he's, not offered much evidence that it did mislead him and even if it did even if the spam counts were wrong that's actually not a basis for walking away from a merger he would have to show not only that they were wrong but that they were dramatically wrong and were having some kind of long-term effect on twitter's finances and that kind of showing just it hasn't been made there's no evidence that that's the case um yeah so each one of his grounds just they don't see that substantial
3: talk to us about the legal precedent here because if they rule in twitter's favor What happens? I mean, can they really force someone to buy a company? And and then what occurs?
9: Well, that's exactly the issue. I mean, I think that most people, at least watching from the outside, think that uh, Twitter is a very strong case. The question is, what happens after Twitter is found correct? Then, Then what? What do we do? Well, they've signed a contract and the contract basically says that there are two possibilities one possibility is specific performance meaning musk is ordered by the court to follow through with his obligations and actually acquire twitter and the other is that musk pay a breakup fee of a billion dollars obviously twitter would much rather he buy the company because (laughs) he's promised to pay 44 billion and that's bigger than one billion so the question is whether a court can and will really order musk to go through and buy the company and delaware has done that there have been several occasions in the past Where buyers got cold feet and they wanted to walk away, and a court said, nope, and ordered that they actually go through and buy. But this case is much bigger. It's a much bigger dollar figure on the deal, and it's a company that has this huge social footprint. And there's a real question as to whether a court will think it's appropriate to force an unwilling buyer to buy a company that's so um, important socially uh, over his own objections. But then the alternative, at least contractually, is just a billion dollars, which doesn't seem right either.
3: Yeah, and and to that end, how much do... the judges, the lawyers involved have to paint a picture of what has been lost for Twitter financially as well, because fundamentally, obviously, the picture has changed since he first made the offer. And we all understand that. And some would hypothesize that this is all just a way in which to renegotiate the terms of the deal rather than walk away entirely. But this is also, you know, they've lost key talent. How can you assign monetary value to that?
9: Well, that's exactly why, uh, uh, parties contract to say there should be specific performance, meaning that Musk Musk has to go through with it, It, because you can't put a dollar figure very easily on it. Mm. So that's why Twitter and Musk agreed originally that the proper remedy would be to order him to close, because there's no way exactly to put a dollar figure on it. And even if Twitter were to try, it would run into the fact that they've already agreed that if it has to be a dollar figure. A billion is the most they can get. So it's really kind of complicated whether the court is willing to order specific performance. If it's not, is it going to be stuck with the billion dollar cap or will it actually try to assess the amount of damage to Twitter, which could be much higher?
3: And, of course, I feel like this is going to go down in the history books, but also the legal, uh, the legal education books of what we've now learned. We all knew this was, an, from day one, an extraordinary offer, an extraordinary deal, and, uh, and a very extraordinary person at the top sort of leading and driving this. From your perspective, does anything change? Do you think this makes companies act in a different way when they have become a target?
9: Well, Elon Musk is so uh, singular. I mean, nothing about this deal unfolded the way deals normally do, Um, this sort of overnight purchase where he was pressuring the company on Twitter and it was signed almost immediately. I mean, if there's any lesson here, it's that if you have sort of an erratic buyer to be a little bit more careful, at least in the drafting of, of the merger agreement, which is not always very tightly drafted, but I mean, the billion dollar damages to maybe they shouldn't have included that part. Um, but I'm not sure how many lessons there are for the future because I'm not sure how many impulsive buys of a 44 $44 billion of a public company you ordinarily see. I mean, it's the, the oddity of the purchase and the, and the impression that Musk gave that he was buying it, not for financial reasons, but simply because he wanted it personally, that make this so extraordinary and so hard to figure out what the next steps are.
3: And of course, everyone quips, oh, the only winners are the lawyers. Are they?
9: <laughs> um, well, they'll certainly do pretty well. <laughs> um, if, I, I think Musk will pretty much win if he gets to walk away from this for a billion dollars and nothing more. I mean, because... You know he signed an agreement and, and, and created this chaos for this company and if the only thing he has to pay i mean for me a billion dollars would be quite a bit but Greenland musk it's you know what's under his couch cushion so um so for, he i think would make out pretty well if that's all
3: that he had to pay um otherwise I, he, I mean, he ends up with a company and lipton Extraordinary times. You put it all so eloquently for us. We thank you. Chilean University Associate Professor in Business Law and Associate Dean for Faculty Research. We thank you for joining. Coming up, crypto. Well, it could be facing another tumble. But does this actually mean that the regulation for digital assets is more important than ever? Kristen Smith, Blockchain Association, with us. This is Bloomberg. Let's talk about today's crypto report. Wall Street, some of them, are expecting the crypto crash to get a whole lot worse. Now Bitcoin is likely to drop to $10,000 that's according to about 60% of a mixture of Wall Street and retail investors who responded to the latest Bloomberg Mlive pulse survey. Joining us now to debate and also where next for policymaking is Kristen Smith, executive director of Blockchain Association and please say as always it's Shanali Bassak as well from Bloomberg. And Kristen I want to get your take first and foremost when and we can take what we want with a pinch of salt to a certain degree of where next for prices but as we see this unarguable crypto winter upon us, is it now the time to be doubling down on policymaking, ensuring that perhaps the protections there as and when maybe we get a more intense bout of interest in the space again?
10: No, I think you're absolutely right. There's a big focus right now in Washington on trying to figure out the right regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies. It's important to remember that there are a lot of policies in place today. The on-ramps and off-ramps are regulated for anti-money laundering purposes. Uh, There's uh, sanctions requirements. Uh, There's securities laws that apply in certain instances. But what we really need is a fresh look At the regulatory space we need to figure out a framework for stable coins we need to figure out a framework for regulating the spot markets and I think the events that have happened in the market in the in the you know past few weeks and months have really focused policymaker
11: attention on trying to figure out a path forward. A path forward, and especially as you look at who has claimed to the assets at the end of the day in the event of bankruptcies or other forms of unwinding. How do regulators start to make sure that it is indeed the consumers that are protected instead of the investors in these companies? And what types of uh, tensions does that create moving forward?
10: Well listen, I think this is the first time we've seen a couple of the um, larger companies in this space go bankrupt where there's actually questions about customer assets. So I think that there are some space places in bankruptcy law that we need to look at this. But I think more importantly though, we need to have a regulatory home for these types of organ- you know these types of entities that are doing consumer lending. Um, we have not seen in the past uh, very many crypto, Uh, native organizations be able to get bank charters Um, I think we need to have a discussion about how can we
11: open it up so that when you're dealing with customer deposits that there is some sort of regulatory framework in place you know you're really tied in with both the regulators the lawmakers and the companies themselves realistically we've been waiting years and there's been very little (laughs) movement on that front so realistically how soon can you see it now that you're seeing customers retail investors lose hundreds of millions of dollars well, I think if you look
10: at um, kind of the overall timeline, it, I, the key moment for getting this done is going to be 2023. I, I think that most regulators have done everything they can within uh, the the authority that they already have to provide guidance in this space. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, but what the sort of consensus is, is we really need a new framework, one that Congress has to put in the law via legislation. And we've been very excited to see proposals like the Lemus-Gillibrand proposal and others that are trying to look at these uh, questions in a thoughtful and comprehensive way. I think the political reality is we're not going to see very much traction Uh, this year because the election is coming up, there's only a few um, legislative weeks left and something of this magnitude just simply isn't going to move. But what we're doing at the Blockchain Association is with our members are meeting every single week to go deep on a different topic and and finally sort of coalesce around what we think we can live with as an industry Mm -hmm. and so that we can come to the table with solutions. So I think there's a lot of work, a lot of discussion, uh, definitely a lot of legal bills, I can tell you that much. Uh, And we're we're really working hard to try to bring
3: actionable solutions to the table. And I think 2023 is going to be the year that this all comes together. What about other jurisdictions? Is Europe leading way in some way? Are there other regional driving forces that are leading the pack versus the U.S.? Yeah,
10: no, Europe made uh, quite a bit of, um, uh, I guess you could call it progress. Uh, uh, Last month, uh, they passed um, sort of a more comprehensive Uh, look that impacts uh, legislation that um, looks at both stablecoins as well as uh, spot markets and things of that nature. I I don't think the way that they've landed on um, their policies are ideal, but they they have moved forward. And I think that's another um, factor that will put more pressure on the U.S. Congress in order for them to move forward with with a more comprehensive legislative solution.
11: How hard is it for regulators to really either make customers whole or keep track of client funds when so many companies are deciding to domicile elsewhere? Dubai is becoming a huge hub for crypto firms, Hong Kong, the Bahamas even. So how then do customers in the U.S. stay protected?
10: Well, customers in the U.S. should be operating with U.S.-based entities that are licensed to operate here in the U.S. Um, you know, you there is technology where you can get around any sort of, uh, you know, geofencing that's put into place. And we've seen quite a bit of this actually in the derivatives market because there is demand in the U.S. for more access to derivatives. And the only way to get around that is to use a VPN and go to some overseas exchange. So I think actually having better, clearer rules of the road here in the U.S. will keep keep consumers protected here um, and, and you know, make sure that the um, the companies here in the U.S. that are offering these services have the ability to do to meet the demand that their customers, have, um, you know, the, the services that they want and, and do that in a way that's much, much safer.
3: Kristen, have the companies, have you been discussing with companies sort of their moral obligations going forward as well. well. They might not be legal obligations, but many will say, look, this push towards saying it was democratization, this fervour around this FOMO feeling around advertising, particularly at the peak when we're all looking at, you know, adverts that happen to be around the Super Bowl. Have there been lessons learned there? And is there a sol- an element of self-regulation going forward that they don't get themselves into this sort of situation again where, yes, you can read the small print, but really they should have been more transparent that there isn't FDIC protection and the like?
10: yeah no it's interesting it's um the d5 protocols itself the true decentralized finance that didn't break and even with va- vast changes in prices and a tremendous amount of market activity going on uh, the DeFi protocols themselves, uh, they continue to operate, right? That's just software. Uh, where we've run into trouble is situations where we have centralized entities that are taking possession um, of other funds, um, and also where we've had lending that's gone on in a way that's levered you know, multiple times over. But that's really been where the, the problems um, have, have been. And so I think that what we have to do is look at how do we put regulation on those centralized entities? entities, um, and what are their obligations, but the underlying technology, these software driven DeFi platforms, uh, those continued to work just fine. And in fact, um, you know, even under tremendous amount of stress, they all continue to perform. One other thing I would point out though, is that the industry itself is swooping in to make sure that customers are harmed as little as yeah. possible. Um, We've seen Sam Bankman-Fried at FTX, uh, yeah. who's come in and been a backstop to many of these companies. I mean, I've been joking, we don't need Uncle Sam because we have Uncle Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> um, that is obviously not sustainable, but yes. it's very much, you know, sort of like J.P. Morgan back, uh, you know, in 1907, that saying, hey, we don't, we see the bigger picture and we want to get through this turbulent time so we can yeah. get on building all of the services that we think are going to improve uh, so many lives.
3: We thank you so much, Kristen Smith of Blockchain Association, along, of course, with our own Shanali Basak on all things crypto. Meanwhile, let's get some breaking news because it was one of the biggest SPACs, of course, special purpose acquisition companies, Tontine Holdings. It was, of course, Bill Ackman's. Pershing Square Tontine Holdings is going to return that $4 billion of money raised to capital to shareholders, CEO Bill Ackman is telling us in a letter to its shareholders at the moment. And of course, this is after they failed to find an acquisition to take out. So the t- clock is ticking for many of these SPACs and many of them are still without an acquisition in the field. Amazon Prime Day. It's this week, which means the internet was going to be a frenzy over limited-time deals and exclusive Prime member-only prices. Joining us now on what to expect Spencer Soper, who covers Amazon. And, of course, it's a difficult time. Inflation is real. Is it going to be more expensive? Are we still going to be able to get the deals that we're used to?
8: Yeah, it's a great question. You have this conflict, right? So you have – it should be a great day for a sale because so many shoppers are trying to fight inflation by looking for deals – but then you know merchants and brands and manufacturers they're all dealing with rising costs as well so they don't want to offer steep discounts because they want to be wary of the profit margins so it's going to attract a lot of people they're going to spend a lot of money e-marketers estimating up about 17%, but Mm. they're probably not going to get as much as as much with their money as as they'd like to.
3: Yeah, we're all sort of used to that. We're spending the same amount, but we're getting less and less with it. To that end, how much are they managing to bring people in more into the actual prime overall offering? They've obviously been doing some interesting offerings, but purchasing, you know, Grubhub was the latest one that we understand they're going to be teaming with. How much are people committed to this?
8: That's a really great question, and we're definitely seeing signs that, that uh, Amazon's finally hitting a ceiling in the in, in the U.S. on Prime membership. There are some numbers that came out last week that they uh, there are about 172 million Prime members. You know, so that could include multiple people under one subscription in a household. But 172 million mem- members uh, in the U.S. as of June 30, which is unchanged from January. Now, granted, they added 30 million in 2020 and 30 million in 2021, so they saw this huge leap during the pandemic but there's definitely signs that it's you know leveling off and we'll see if it starts fading if people start uh, looking to cut their budgets in mm-hmm. the in the face of inflation.
3: Yeah, just to that end, do you think Amazon is priming its pardon the pun. It's prepping itself basically to become even more necessary in this time of inflationary pressure or is it a subscription that we're all more likely to cut?
8: Well, the, the uh, uh, they definitely want to be absolutely necessary. And that's why they keep Building things in on it like video and that sort of thing, so that as you're looking at your budget, you'll think, "Well, do we really need Amazon Prime for the delivery?" But you know what? We watch the video too, or we get these other perks as well. Now, now they threw in Grubhub, like you mentioned. You know, they're just trying to pile things on to make it, um, uh, you know, it, it, as compelling as possible, as people are looking to cut things out of their mm. out of their budget. But granted, they just raised it by 20 bucks, 139 dollars a year. Some people might be be thinking it's time to uh, cut Amazon loose.
3: Oh. We all keep reflecting on our budgets and seeing what's the most integral. It kind of depends on the programming as well, I'm sure. Bloomberg Spencer Soap are going to be bringing us, well, what the hottest deal is. Apparently, according to my producer, it's makeup brushes, lotion with collagen. Who knew? Hmm. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, an exclusive with Jess Lee, partner at Sequoia Capital. Her advice to founders on how to navigate the current market conditions, you do not want to miss it. And don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal, as well as online on Apple, Spotify and iHeart from New York. This is Bloomberg.
6: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move.